Good morning. My name is Elise Steele. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Psalms. Please follow along in your Bible, or you can use the screens. I'll be reading Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19, from the New International Version. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my inequity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my inequity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in the burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. For me, this is a wonderful opportunity, for I've loved this congregation for a long, long time. And I have been so grateful for the Lord that he has answered the prayer that I prayed in Starbucks years ago. Because Pastor Peter feeds my spirit through the Word of God Sunday after Sunday, and I am so grateful for his honest, intelligent ministry. And he knows much more Greek than I do. I would like to pray before I begin the sermon, but I will pray in the words of the psalmist from Psalm 71. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, you do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation. You might to all who are to come. Amen. 
Did you know that the United States government has a special fund that is entitled, I don't know if it's officially entitled this, but it is called the Conscience Fund. It is set up to hold money that anonymous citizens send in to ease their guilty consciences when they have cheated on their income tax. I heard of one man who wrote to the IRS and saying, I haven't been able to sleep since last year. When I filled out my income tax report, I deliberately misrepresented my income, and I am therefore enclosing a check for $150. If I still can't sleep, I'll send in the rest. (laughs) That is no way to deal with guilt. Psalm 51 is a well-known psalm that teaches us a lot about how to deal with guilt. The inscription is that it's a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Most of you know this story real well. It's found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. The story even starts out bad back then. In the 11th chapter, in the first verse, it says, In the spring when the king, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. Now Joab is off doing the job that the king David was supposed to do and expected to do. And meanwhile, David is lolling around the rooftop of his palace. And he looks over the parapet and he sees a neighbor lady taking a shower without her shutters closed. He saw her, he lusted after her, he wanted her because he was king when he sent for her, she came, he slept with her, impregnated her, and when she got the word, he said, I've got to do something about this. Now the woman's husband was a soldier on duty in David's army. So David contacted Joab, his general, and said, give, her, give him uh, leave to come back and make a report from the battle. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, came back on leave to be interviewed by the king about how's the battle going, how's Joab doing as a general, etc., etc. And then David said, take a couple of days of R&R and uh, relax. Thinking that Uriah would go home, perhaps sleep with his wife, and as a result, the pregnancy would be explained. Uriah had more honor than David did, and he slept with the servants just outside the palace and didn't go home. He said, how in the world can I go home and enjoy food and drink and the company of my wife when I have brothers that are dying on the battlefield? More honor than the king. So David said, we got to do something else. And he had Uriah come in. He wined him and dined him to the point where Uriah got drunk. David thought, now he'll go home. But he didn't go home. He slept with the servants at the gates of the palace. David said, I've I've really got to do something. And so he contacted his general Joab. And he said, when the battle gets hot, put Uriah at the point. And then withdraw the troops so he gets killed. That's what was done. David thinks, I got away with it. 
As a benevolent king, he took the war widow into his harem, thinking everybody would think, what a noble thing for the king to do, to take a fallen warrior's wife and give her the kind of security and comfort she needs. And then God gave the prophet Nathan a very tough order. He said, you got to go and confront David with his sin. Nathan approaches David, tells him the story of a very rich man who took the one sheep from a poor neighbor to feed his visitors. David really got upset at that kind of injustice, and he said, that man ought to die. And Nathan pointed that bony prophet's finger at David and said, you're the guy. And all of a sudden, this carefully constructed house of denial and hiding from his sin collapsed around him. And David could no longer hide from himself and from God, and he became he became helplessly aware of the enormity of his own guilt. And Psalm 51 is his response and his repentance. Notice a few things. First of all, notice that David confessed, but who did he confess to? He confessed to God. Now he knew, blame well, he had damaged a lot of other people. Bathsheba's reputation and character and marriage and husband were a thing of the past. Uriah, the loyal soldier, came to a sudden and bloody and intentional end. Joab, the faithful general, was now complicit in the murder of a soldier. Sin unturned from always seems to draw in more. I can remember as a kid one time lying, well, not one time, unfortunately, but I remember one time lying to my father and discovering that one lie has to have a couple of others added to it to make it plausible, and Dad kept asking me questions, and so I had to keep adding lies. It was terrible. It was just awful. That's a childhood memory, and it's also an adult memory for a lot of us. Sin bears fruit, (laughs) a lot of it, and David discovered this. Even though he had sinned against others, listen to what he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Now he had sinned against a lot of others, but ultimately sin is really against God. All sin is against God and His grace and His image in other people. And David sees that he can no longer blame Bathsheba's immodesty, the pressures of his job, his needs or drives or testosterone level as a man, or the excuse that, well, everybody's doing it. He now confesses to God whom he knows. Now, true, it's He was alienated from God, and I have had people through the years of my ministry who have said, you know, but God feels so far away, so distant from me. And my question, which is perhaps unsensitive, is, well, if God's distant from you, who moved? It wasn't God. David discovered that. Sin is a violation of justice. It's an act of lawlessness. 
David is an adulterer, a murderer. He certainly did not want justice. He needed mercy. And he knows because he calls God a God of unfailing love. God has no obligation to forgive him. I read a book a couple of weeks ago by Brennan Manning. I don't know if you've ever read him, but if you get a chance, Brennan Manning is really worth your time. Former Roman Catholic priest, got lost into alcohol, came to in a doorway in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, after a drunken spree of months and years, and has become became one of the most loving and powerful voices from the Word of God. Just died a couple of weeks ago. He wrote a book. The title of it is The Furious Longing of God. Strange title, I thought. And part of it is a paragraph he wrote, I would add that the outstretched arms of Jesus exclude no one, neither the drunk in the doorway, the panhandler on the street, gays and lesbians in their isolation, the most selfish and ungrateful in their cocoons, the most unjust of employers, the most overweening of snobs. The love of Christ embraces all without exception. Again, the love of God is folly. David experienced this. He knew a God of unfailing love. He knew a God of great compassion. God is a God of great compassion. God doesn't hear my prayer or my confession or yours and say, well, I've got a little bit of compassion I can still give you. I can spare this much. No, he's a God of unfailing love and great compassion. And that leads us to real repentance. I, I am sometimes overwhelmed with the fact that while we are constantly, myself included, are preening our public image to try and convince people we are perhaps better than we really are, God knows us. I mean, he really does. How in the world then can we come into his presence with the kind of pretense we frequently present to each other? Hmm. I am overwhelmed by the love of God. And then there's something else. What does God, or what does David confess? There was an old song that used to be sung as a special number. I remember the woman that used to sing in my home church. It wasn't much of a voice, and it wasn't much of a song. If I have wounded any soul today, if I have caused one foot to go astray, if I have walked in my own willful way, dear Lord, forgive. What kind of a confession is that, if I have done all of those things? Reminds me of the boy who heard somebody give a testimony about coming out of a disastrous kind of a life, of illegal kind of a life, and then finding Christ. He was so impressed that that night he prayed, Lord, I've never killed anybody. I've never been guilty of adultery. I even don't swear. And if you can still use me, Lord, I hope you can. That's the kind of silliness that we sometimes get involved in. And so when David confesses, he's pretty thorough. He confesses he's in, been in rebellion against God. And he uses three words. 
my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions. Now, if you've listened with the prophet I have to Pastor Peter, you know that he has defined sin as the illegitimate way of meeting legitimate needs. Sin then means to miss the mark, miss the target. Iniquity, however, means perverseness, wickedness. Sin is kind of a slip-up sometimes, but not iniquity. That's a deliberate action. And my transgression means rebellion, only, not only turning away from the law, but actively revolting against another, and in this case, God. And David confesses he's in bondage. My sin is ever before me. Hmm. David knows that sin is not something that happens, that just happens. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now don't misread David there. David is not saying that the sin is the act of conception, that the sin is sex. But he is saying that his conception introduced him into sinful humanity, where sin is already deeply embedded. I have a friend that likes to mock the idea of original sin as being outmoded and unreal. And I keep saying to him, you have three kids. Did you ever have to teach them, any one of them, how to be bad, how to lie, how to be selfish? That came with the package. You don't have to teach sin. It's there. It's not just a surface problem. It's part of our whole nature. So then what does David say? He asks to be restored to relationship with God. In this, there's a sound of hope and good news. If God is willing to act, he can be made whiter than snow. If God is willing to act, David can be filled with joy and gladness. If God will, he can blot out his transgressions. He can restore the joy of his salvation, if God will. (laughs) Oh, God will. No if about it. If you go through the scripture and look where it talks about confession and talks about the relationship with sin and talks about our love for God and God's love for us, the if always is attached to our love. If we do this, it's never attached to God's love. God's love never varies. As Brennan Manning has said, the love of Christ embraces all without exception, and it is folly. So David asked for God to act on his behalf. Look at that. Have mercy, blot out my transgressions, teach me wisdom, cleanse me, wash me, let me hear joy and gladness, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquity, create in me a pure heart, renew a right spirit, on and on and on, he's asking. He has really been suffering, even though it has been semi-conscious. Do you realize that when Jesus prayed with his disciples the night he was betrayed in John 17, he prays in the verse 22 and 23, I have given them, speaking of the disciples, I have given them the glory you gave to me, that they may be one as we are one. 
with me and them and you and me. May they be so perfected in unity that the world will recognize that it was you who sent me and that you have loved them as you have loved me. And then Brandon Manning writes, while praying over these remarkable words, I came to the inexcusable, inescapable conclusion that the degree of Abba's love for me is in direct proportion to his love for Jesus. God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. Man, that ought to blow our minds. God loves me, and he knows me, and he loves me as much as he loves Jesus. And Jesus is the one that said that, not Bud. David says, when you forgive me, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. I will witness to God's way with the repentant. I can be freed, forgiven, cleansed, healed, and so can you. David says, I will use my gifts to praise the king. David, you know, had been anointed in 2 Samuel chapter 23, I think it is, to be the psalm singer of Israel. Hmm. He hadn't been doing much singing lately. But he says, save me, verse 14, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The sweet singer of Israel would sing again. When guilt goes, the song of the redeemed returns and sing David does. Psalm 40, he lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand and put a new song in my heart. Even praise to our God. And verse uh, Psalm 32 is just full of references to singing because blessed is a man whose sins are forgiven. And then he says he'll lead the nation in true worship. Verse 19, there will be righteous sacrifices. Righteous sacrifices. Worship would no longer be mechanical or a form. Every song would be sung. Every psalm would be read. Every prayer would be prayed. Every testimony would be given in honest and joyous expression of a heart that's been cleansed and set free. When I was a lad, my parents established a practice every night. I don't know where they got the wisdom to do this, but every night before my brother and I would go to bed, we'd approach dad first and then mom, give him a kiss and say, forgive me if I've hurt your feelings today. And dad would say, most of the time, Yes, of course I will. Will you forgive me? Which taught me as a child that adults mess it up too. And I remember one time I broke a window and blamed a cousin I didn't like and dad bought it. And that night when I came to dad and said, forgive me, I've hurt your feelings. 
He said yes, but he had no clue as to what I had done. I could not go to sleep. I must have been eight years old. And I can still remember that awful weight that laid on me as I laid in my bed. Until finally I came down the stairs again and dad saw me in the doorway and said, what are you doing up? You ought to be in bed. And I ran over to dad and I confessed the broken window. Then after our tears and all the rest, I asked him, dad, will you forgive me if I've hurt your feelings? I did not doubt that he would forgive me. That's the way my dad was. But I got to tell you my reaction. I floated back upstairs to my bed. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, in whom the Lord no longer counts iniquity. I know, even as an eight-year-old, what that meant to David. One more thing. I told Pastor Peter before the service today that I was doing some thinking about a particular man that expressed joy over being forgiven. And I thought of a guy named Uncle Bud Stedham. And then I realized he was in a church where I was preaching 58 years ago. That's really scary. (laughs) Uncle Bud Stedham had been a moonshiner in southern Alabama. We had our first church on the edge of a swamp down there in southern Alabama, a little country church. And Uncle Bud Stedham had been a moonshiner, and a very successful one. He had an old 1939 Harley-Davidson that he used to run away from the revenuers because their cars couldn't follow him through the paths through the swamp. He loaned me that one time when my car needed work, so I rode that old moonshiner's motorcycle. I hadn't been in this little country church very long, probably a couple of weeks, when one Sunday evening I used the term grace, something about the unbelievable grace of God, and I heard this, what the world was that? A few minutes later I came back to the unbelievable grace of God. And I asked somebody afterwards, what was that noise? Oh, that was Uncle Bud. Every time he thinks about the grace of God as applied to him, he just gets overwhelmed. And he did. And I learned that in the months that Uncle Bud was still living, that the grace of God completely blew him away. And I think it ought to blow us away. We sometimes come tripping into God's presence with all kinds of garbage in our lives. And this past week, we haven't asked anybody forgiveness. We say, hey, I had a right. It's only fair. And we sing the songs of praise. And we pray the prayers of the righteous. And it's kind of a formality. That's why David says, when I have been forgiven by this faithful God who is great, unfailing in his love and great in his compassion, then we will offer righteous sacrifices. You know, 
You've heard me say, some of you have heard me say this before. We sing songs. Great is thy faithfulness. How great thou art. And we look like we've been baptized in vinegar. There ought to be a sense of joy in our hearts. There ought to be light in our lives. Because David had the song restored. And if you don't have a song in your heart today, you can. You can. Behold what manner of love the Father has for us, that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. Praise his name. If you don't know that assurance and that joy, in spite of all the problems life is heir to, please talk to somebody today and get that settled. Amen.